You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Thank you so much, Alyssa and David, for leading us in singing the very words of God and encouraging one another by them. Uh, My name is Dustin Good. If I haven't met you yet, I get the undeserved privilege of being one of the leaders here at Calvary, and I'm pumped to be able to jump in on one of these Galatians sermons. We're going to be looking at Galatians 3, 1 to 9, 3, 1 to 9 this morning. So take this time to flip your Bible open to that spot. If you don't have one, you can just grab one of the church Bibles. It's on page 1032 in those Bibles. And if you don't yet own a Bible, then we would like to say just take one of the church Bibles as our gift to you. The Bible is such a treasure for Christians because in it we find the words of life and the knowledge of God, who is the treasure of the universe. If you look at your bulletin, I've named this sermon, The Promises by Faith. It's broken into two main chunks, the promised spirit by faith and the promised blessings by faith. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray and and then get there. God, our Father, we just pray that as we come together to have this sort of family meal at your table of your word, that... We would love what you have dished up for us, that we would take it into ourselves, that it would nourish and strengthen and become a part of us. I want to pray that you would help me to connect my heart and my mind to my mouth, and I want to pray for everyone listening, God, that the Holy Spirit would be applying it, applying it to our hearts and helping us to come to live by it by changing our minds first. We also want to pray, God, I want to specifically pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing lots of trial, lots of suffering, lots of opposition from the dragon. God, I pray that you would help them to overcome him by the word of their testimony concerning Jesus, their faith in him. I pray that they would look ahead to the finish line and the glorious things, some of which we'll look at this morning, that are promised to everyone who believes, and that they would not shrink from death, counting their lives so important as to turn away from you. And I pray that you would put that same spirit into us, even though our struggle might not be so much against aggression. More in our culture, we have a struggle against the seduction of the world. But we're engaged in the same fight, and I pray you to put that same spirit in us, help them to overcome till the end, until we're all built together as pillars in your temple, and that, and um, yeah, and we can see you face to face together with them, and we will know it was all worth it. Amen. Two texts from the Old Testament to kind of set the scene here. Genesis 3.24 says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
And then Exodus 26.1, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains, finely twined linen, blue and purple, and scarlet yarn, and you shall make them with cherubim skillfully woven into them. And what gives access to God? What gives people access to God? What makes human beings acceptable before him? What brings us into the blessing of God? That's the question, really, that Paul is answering through this entire letter, and he does it by displaying lots of contrasts between works of the law and hearing with faith. So let's read today's section in Paul's own words, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 1 to 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the ESV, so it might sound a little different. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So our first section we're going to get into is the promised spirit by faith. And I want you to look back at verse 2. Verse 2, and notice the phrase where Paul says, let me ask you only this. It's like Paul is saying, let me ask you one thing, Galatians. And if I only asked you this one thing, it would blow the argument of the Judaizers out of the water. If nothing else was said, this would be enough. If I wrote you a one-sentence letter, this would be it. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Like, that's sufficient. That's the crux. Case closed. But in the grace and patience of God, he did write us more than one sentence in this letter. But I want to dive into why that's such an important question. Why that question should end the confusion. The first thing we're going to do is to, that we need to do, I think, is to look back at the Spirit's interaction with the people of God in the Old Covenant. And by Old Covenant, I'm referring to like the pre-Jesus times. <clears throat> if you're doing the Bible reading plan, maybe you can remember back to when we did Judges. It was a number of months ago. And how God worked in that book of Judges um, by raising up all these different judges as rescuers for the people of Israel and they would perform mighty deliverances through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. However, it always described the Spirit as coming upon them or rushing upon them, that sort of thing. He would, then he would depart. He would be with them for specific reasons and limited times. Then he would withdraw. Sometimes the Bible will describe somebody as being filled with the Spirit in the days before Jesus came, like, like uh, Exodus 23 or 28.3, Micah 3.8, Luke 1, 
67. But again, those instances are to be viewed as a filling for specific reasons and limited times. The point is, is that before the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit would come and go with his people. He didn't come upon someone and fill them in an abiding way. His abiding place at that time was in the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, in the tabernacle or temple. So that's the first thing to realize. The second thing to see is that nobody had a truly changed heart before Jesus came. They, they looked ahead to the day when God would do that for his people. And, and they trusted that he would do something about the problem of sin. The promises of the indwelling spirit and the changed heart that are in the books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they show us that these things were not yet in action until Jesus came. Because the fact that they're promised, right? They're a promise. They're a promise of something coming shows that they were not yet in action. And that the true people of God were still longing for them. And I really want to show you those two promises um, because they're amazing and they're beautiful. And I want you to know where they are in the Bible. So we're going to go there. Um, They describe what God would do for his people and how he would treat them in the new eternal covenant. The first one's in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. That's on page 700 in the church Bibles. If you want to flip there, Jeremiah 31, 31, 31. The heading says the new covenant. So let's read it together. Or I'll read it to you, but let's read it together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. And if you just flip over one page, Jeremiah keeps talking about the new covenant in 32, 38. 32, 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing good to them. And I'll plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So so it's not like the covenant that he made with them coming out of Egypt, he says. It's a covenant in which he keeps both sides. Awesome. It's eternal from his standpoint, because he promised it is, so it is. And he puts the fear of him in us, so it's eternal from our standpoint, because we don't ultimately turn away. He puts his law and his commandments right in our hearts, thus giving us a changed heart, enabling us to follow him from the heart. All these amazing things come to us 
by grace through faith. And then if you flip a bit more to the right, Ezekiel's also talking about this new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, that's on page 768. If you want to flip over there so you know where it is. Ezekiel 36.25. Just wait till I hear less rustling and then I know you're there. So Ezekiel 36.25, it says, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I'll cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart, And a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. It's amazing. Amazing. Like actual cleaning of the heart. That's something the law never could do. Actual cleaning of the heart. Actual response to God by removal of the stony heart. A new heart and a new spirit he'll put within us. His own spirit to abide with us and cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. This is something different. This was something they hoped for. This is something we experience on the other side of Jesus' work on the cross. That, that we should be the, the abiding place of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That he should find his resting place in us. It's staggering that we should be treated like Jesus, who is the only human ever after the fall to be described at his baptism as having the Spirit rest upon him. That we too, in him, should be the resting place of the Spirit of God. Wow. Now, return to Paul's question in Galatians. If you flip back over to Galatians, the one I was talking about where he said, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive the indwelling presence of the Spirit? How did you come to possess that new heart? Did, Did the works of the law do that for you? Or was it hearing with faith? What brought you true cleansing and a consecrated heart and one way? What what solved the problem of sin? What made it possible for a holy, holy, holy God to dwell with an unholy people? Like, did the 1,500 odd years from Moses to Jesus, those 1,500 years of temple ordinance and ritual and circumcision and shadow, did they do that? Or was it one second of hearing with faith? 1,500 years of law or one second of hearing with faith? What did it? What opened the way, Galatians? As we read in the beginning, God placed those cherubim at the Garden of Eden to block access to the presence of God. Nothing defiled can come before him. And in the temple, he had the curtains woven with cherubim to show that access was not free and open there either. But what tore the temple veil? Was it works of the law or was it Christ crucified? That torn temple veil at Jesus' death is amazingly symbolic. It signifies a couple things at least. That access to God has been blown wide open to everyone. Wide open. 
that he is no longer kept concealed and unapproachable. In Jesus, he is wide open. So much so that every individual Christian and every true local church is now described as being the temple of God. We are the temple. That's amazing. It also signifies that that old way of the law is done away with. It's torn up and thrown away. The shadow that pointed to Jesus is done with because the substance is now here. So much so that it's made Judaism as any other false religion in the world. The law is not how you come to God. Hearing with faith in Christ is. Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. We come to God by hearing with faith. And we continue in him by hearing with faith. Because he's given us one way. The Judaizers, and if you don't remember who those are, those are kind of like the guys that Paul is fighting against in this book of Galatians. They were, that's what he called them. In, in, in Acts, they called them that. The Judaizers would have us believe that they are the true children of Abraham and the super-duper Christians because they rely on works of the law. They're like the Pharisees of John 8. They emphatically told Jesus, those Pharisees, that they said, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. We're the children of God. Jesus agreed that they were offspring. Yes, he said, yeah, you've come from his line. You're of his blood, true, but you're not his children, he told them. If they were Abraham's children, they would do the works of Abraham. And, and like the main work of Abraham highlighted in the scriptures is just to believe God. To believe God and inherit promises. That's his main work. The Pharisees did not believe God. They didn't believe the words of God. And they showed it because they wanted to silence the word of God by killing him. They could not hear because they didn't desire to hear. Their desire was in line with their actual father, the devil. So Jesus, in no uncertain terms, told them they were demonic offspring of, of Abraham. Maybe, though, maybe you think I'm going too far in comparing the troublers in the book of Galatians, who just like want to you know, keep circumcising and follow the law, with the demonic offspring of John 8. But here's why I think that's not a stretch. Look again to the last verse that Mark preached last week. Uh, so that's 2.21. It says, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The troublers in Galatians are espousing the idea that our righteousness is like topped up. Are topped up by adherence to the law. Look at verse 3 in our section today. It says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like you began in the spirit, now you're going to finish in the flesh? Be perfected in the flesh? Reach the finish line in the flesh? Wow, no, no. That's impossible and stupid and demonic. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's what Paul says. If righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a doctrine of demons because Christ's death is the purpose of everything. It's the purpose of everything. The reason God created everything was so that he could ransom a people with his own blood to be, in his to be his possession forever. So to seek righteousness through the law, like to, to add our fleshly power to the saving grace of God, is to say that Christ died for no purpose. That God messed it up. That he didn't know what he was doing. 
that he committed the most colossal blunder of the ages. That's demonic. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, fine, okay, it's demonic, but I, I don't want to accept circumcision for many reasons. But I don't feel compelled to keep the festival days of the Torah. Like, I don't worry about clean and unclean foods and ceremonial washings and becoming contaminated with what might brush up against me. I guess I'm good. I guess I'm good. But my brothers and sisters, we need to think again. Think again. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you the places where you add to the grace of God. Like, pray right now. Pray right now that he would mercifully show you where you're seeking to be perfected in the flesh. Show him, ask him to show you your blind spots, because you're blind to them. A couple that he's shown me from my life are how good I'm doing at Bible intake and study, and family life. Those are two areas where I'm tempted to add my righteousness to what Christ has done to me. Because I'll confess to you, you know, I'm Mr. Bible reading plan. I'm always trying to keep that going at church. But I had to give up on catching up lately and skip over 21 days of the plan. I missed 21 and I'm like, I'm never going to catch up. And I'm tempted to keep that a secret because I want everyone to think that I'm really good at reading my Bible. I'm tempted to make my Bible intake a meter on how accepted before God I am. Do you see what the flesh does? Like, it can take something glorious and wonderful and awesome like the Word of God and turn it into sin. Like, I'm tempted to add my law of Bible reading to what Christ has done for me. Top it up. Or in parenting, I'm tempted to work hard at it in order to be looked at in order to be made much of. I'm tempted to make parenting and homeschooling and dying for my wife as Christ does the church the, the banner over my life. I'm tempted to make those things my claims on righteousness as demonic. But don't misunderstand, of course, there's tons of stuff we're to obey in the Bible. I'm not saying we don't obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. There's tons to obey. It's good to read and study our Bibles. It's good to work hard in your home and try and raise up kids for the Lord and point everybody to Christ. <clears throat> but if those things are the flag I'm flying over my life, rather than Christ crucified, then I'm seeking to be perfected in the flesh. How about you? What are the areas where you need to burn some flags and fly the flag of Christ full mast? Think about it. Could you imagine an Indy 500 race, like that's those crazy fast car races, where a driver hopped out of his car to finish on foot? Like the average speed, not the top, the average speed in those races is 257 kilometers an hour. Not only would he never finish the race, he'd also probably get killed because of all those cars going by so fast. And that's like a little picture of what it is to begin in the spirit and be perfected by the flesh. Because God's not impressed with our like, insignificant rule-keeping. The things that we are like, oh, this is how I'm doing good before God. We should want to obey him because we love him, not to impress him. What God loves to see is that we believe him. Like Abraham, that we believe, along with our father Abraham, that God's good, that he's got a plan, and that he's got the power to accomplish his good plan. The Christian life is just a life of going like deeper and deeper into believing God's good, he has a plan, and the power to accomplish his good plan, come what may. 
The last thing I want us to take notice of before we move into our next section is verse 4. Verse 4 says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. To be a servant of Christ in this world is to, is to suffer now. And to receive your best things later. That's how it works. The whole world is trying to be righteous by works. In every religion, every worldview, every pattern of thought in the world, you will find different measures of righteousness based on adherence to whatever that group deems the most important. Even though the world's really not united, it is united in that. Christianity is the only worldview in the world ever to say that righteousness is by the grace of God through hearing with faith. Nobody else says that. Have you suffered as a servant of Christ for trusting in his righteousness alone? Have you been maligned? Have you been ridiculed for such a simple faith? Well, have you set your face like flint to accept that suffering? There's no suffering if you just swim with the current, right? So embrace it. And consider the reproach of Christ like the worst parts of being in Christ, as better riches than anything the world can offer you. So our next section we're going to jump into now is the promised blessing by faith. That was the promised spirit. As we've already seen, it's not blood that makes you a child of Abraham, but faith. Right? It isn't according to seed that we inherit blessing. It's according to promise. Abraham had two children from his body. One was according to the flesh, and he came about through like human ingenuity and like twisted rationalization. That was Ishmael. And one was according to the promise, by the Spirit of God and trust in the words of God. That was Isaac. We're going to explore the contrast of those two sons more at the end of chapter 4. But right now what I want to highlight is the word of. Of. As in, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Of is used a lot in the genealogies, like in Matthew 1, 5, where it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, or of Rahab. It's a word that describes something coming from something else. It's proceeding out of. It's coming forth from. That's of. So verse 7 in our text, 3, 7, is saying, like, just like Boaz came forth from the womb of Rahab, so too, God's children of promise came forth from the womb of faith, bearing children for Abraham. Faith is the womb that the faithful come forth from. I had to practice that sentence a bunch of times. <laughs> faith is the stuff, the DNA that they're made out of. Like We who believe are of faith, so we will continue in faith, and, our, and we're like our father Abraham the prototype of faith. Hearing with faith is, is the arena that God works in. It's the reality and the world that God births his children into. Faith is the only way we become of God, and it's the only way we come to God. Hearing with faith is the only way sinners become acceptable to God. It's the only way we can know God. Know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And being of faith, we inherit the blessing by faith, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Throughout the Bible, and still in many cultures around the world, sons inherit the wealth of their fathers and the blessings. 
Faith makes you a son of Abraham. By believing, you become an inheriting son. And male and female, it makes no difference. If you believe, you inherit like a son. Through faith and union with Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead, we all inherit like firstborn sons. That's amazing. So what do we inherit? What is the blessing? Well, in a word, everything. By faith, we're in Christ, and we inherit with Christ, and Christ will inherit everything. He has inherited everything, so we inherit everything. But let's highlight a few specifics. Verse 8, verse 8 says that we inherit justification. Justification is to be declared not guilty. Every human being is condemned before God because of our sin and our rebellion. So this is a wonderful blessing, to be declared not guilty by the judge of all the earth. Christ is not guilty, and we're in Christ. Abraham, Abraham looked ahead to what the promised one would do, and we, we look back to what the promised one has done, and together we are declared not guilty. Just flip a couple pages to your right over to Ephesians, Ephesians 2. It's probably like two pages over. Ephesians 2. There's an amazing description of some of the blessings there, some of the inheritance. This is a bit bigger section, but we're going to read it anyway. It's good. It's great to read God's words. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, so that's probably all of us in this room, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Ah, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That's the church. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and he preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone." in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man. Such an amazing description of the bleakness of our existence before Jesus, but then a beautiful and meaningful inheritance and blessing by faith. No longer Jew and Gentile opposed to each other and hostile, but one new man out of the two, the church. 
Access to the Father by one spirit. Receiving the covenants of promise with full hope, with friendship with God. Citizens of the world to come. Being God's temple and being made into God's temple. The dwelling place for God by the spirit. Go soak in that this afternoon. Then, then there's the blessing specifically given to Abraham. I see each of the areas of blessing to Abraham as solutions to each of the curses that were given to Adam and Eve and fully realized in Jesus. So, the curse consisted of the areas of lost dominion, a curse upon the womb, and a curse upon the land. Dominion, womb, land. Abraham is promised the blessing of being a father of a multitude of nations and the kings would come from him. That fixes the problem of lost dominion. Abraham is promised the blessing that his offspring will be more than the stars of the heavens. That fixes the problem of the cursed womb. Abraham is promised the blessing of inheriting a land flowing with milk and honey. And that fixes the problem of the cursed land. These blessings and promises, they were given a taste of fulfillment in the reign of Solomon. Israel had become the head while all the other nations were the tail. They, they had the land. They had increased greatly. Their, their wealth was elaborate and their industry was booming. As Solomon said in his coronation prayer, he said this, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. But Solomon, Solomon eventually led Israel astray as he was led astray by his foreign wives and their foreign gods. And they crashed and burned because they had not yet gotten new hearts and they didn't have the abiding spirit with them. They had not received the spirit by faith as of yet. But the blessings and promises to Abraham find their final fulfillment in his offspring, Jesus, and in his people and in his kingdom. Abraham was told he would possess the gates of his enemies. And Jesus is described as having the keys of Abraham's greatest enemy, death and Hades. Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords, and rules with a rod of iron, smashing his enemies to pieces like clay pots. Abraham was told he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And in Revelation 7, Jesus is described of having a, as having a people from every nation, from all tribes and tongues and languages. God has promised the nations as Jesus' inheritance. Abraham was told that he would have offspring like the stars in the heavens that no one can count. And in Jesus, through the womb of faith, the children of the desolate one, will be more than the children of her who is married, Isaiah 54. God has promised that Jesus would see his offspring even as he gathers his people together as a hen gathers her brood. Abraham was told he would possess land and Jesus is preparing a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and there's no sin or causes of sin, where thieves do not break in and steal and they shall no more destroy on God's holy mountain. Oh, my family, like not one word of all the good promises of God shall fall to the ground. And they will find their yes and their amen in Jesus. All of them. So then, those who are of faith are blessed. Lavishly blessed. Blessed beyond belief, along with Abraham, the man of faith. We have need of perseverance. Perseverance. 
so that when we have done the will of God, we'll receive what he has promised. We have begun in the Spirit. Let's continue in the Spirit. We've been born of faith. Let's walk in faith. So think often of what you have right now in Jesus and about what you will have one day in him. Don't be led astray by the foolishness of your own flesh, thinking that you could add to what Jesus has done for you. He he doesn't want our help. Rather, he wants to help us. Don't be bewitched by the allurement of the world and its cheap trinkets. The wealth the world promises and the protection it espouses are vapor built on nothing. We must have the long view that looks to the finish line and how we're going to get there. We must have Zion, the heavenly city of God, tethered to our hearts, pulling us home. Let's have the faith of Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ as greater riches than what the world could offer. And let's have the faith of Abraham, who believed that God's good, that he has a plan, and the power to accomplish his good plan. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's go there together. Let's help each other get there. Let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day of Jesus approaching. Grace and peace to all those who love his appearing. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.